Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. We are continuing our, um, our study on the Westminster Confession. We are in chapter 30. Uh, that means we have had 30 lessons on this, right? That's significant. 30 Sundays. Uh, and so uh, on chapter 30, we're going to be talking about the church cens- censures. Oh, boy, I hope I can be able to say that because I'm going to be saying it a lot. Um, basically, uh, today we're going to be talking about the church's ability to discipline her people. So let's uh, have a word of prayer. We'll probably need it for this one. And, uh, and then we'll get going. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, are grateful to you, Lord, for uh, this time that has been set aside, that we might understand the summary of your word and that we might be able to um, use this information not just for um, knowledge's sake, Lord, but for preparing our hearts, even for today's message. And Lord, we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Okay, so um, there was a time uh, where even where I work in a world uh, with a historic fundamentalist uh, background where uh, church membership was not huge on the list of things for people Um, People would attend a church and even be faithful to that church, but it was not incumbent upon them to be members of the church. Now, uh, I was even a part, I was a member of a church uh, not too long ago down in Greenville, um, in which the pastor of that church told me that he was not concerned about the people in his church that were not members yet. Um, He said, you know, if they want to do that, they can, but I'm just not worried about that. They had been attending that particular church for years. Um, We're not talking about people that have been visiting for a few months. These are people that have been attending for years, and they had not become members. And this was not... Uh, according to this particular pastor, this was not an issue. Um, it wasn't until recently that, uh, even where I work at Bob Jones University, that the president uh, that we have now actually made it incumbent upon our faculty and staff to be a member of a church. Until then, and this is like... Uh, I think he put this into place maybe four years ago, maybe five. And the school's getting awfully close to 100 years old. So I want you to think about that. Um, Why would membership be an issue to people? (laughs) Do you think? Why do people, why do you think there's this 
idea where people can be loyal to a church, but to become a member becomes uh, difficult for them to take that leap. They don't want to submit. <laughs> 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 yes, they don't want to submit. And what do we mean submit? I mean, uh, to whom? The elders, yes, and the pastor. If I can put it this way, to lump them all together, the session, right? There's a certain amount of, um, when we, at, at our church, this is something that, our, uh, that Andrew is probably teaching right now to uh, people who are seeking to become members in the new members class. Uh, in our church, we are um, a Presbyterian church, this means that we have what's called a session. And a session is a group of uh, men who have been elected as elders. Uh, they've been elected by the people to represent the people. Um, and those elders, along with the pastor, meet, and they, it's called a session. And they make decisions, and, um, and one of the things that they do is they have to discipline. Um, those in the congregation that need help. And so submitting uh, means submitting to humans. Why is that an issue, particularly in America today? Okay, being obligated to other humans, we don't like it. And we don't like it because... Um, doesn't, isn't it true it makes you feel helpless or, um, what was that? Burdened. Yeah. Because we've seen bad leadership, haven't we? Uh, for those of you that have been alive in the last few years, you know what bad leadership looks like, right? Um, you know... I'm not saying uh, it's not intelligent. I mean, you know, if you can get a guy that remembers how to sign his name and knows how to read, you have a pretty powerful tool, don't you, to do what you need him to do. Um, and we've seen it, you know, we've seen the corruption so bad that it makes us suspicious of any kind of leadership, right? Um, social media, there's been studies that have demonstrated that social media has been a big part in the next generation's view of authority. So social media kind of teaches you, you don't need authority, you can speak against authority. And, you know, and that's okay, we have, we have freedom of speech. But the kind of uh, cynicism towards authority has been, um, I think, uh, unprecedented till now because of what we are able to do in social media. Yes, Bob? That's a good point. Quite frankly, if we won't give authority to God, we don't have to give authority. We've got to figure it wisely. 
Yeah. So good. Yeah. So for those online, what what Bob is saying is one of the one of the main reasons um, he believes that people refuse God is because in their rebellious heart they are refusing the authority that comes with God, and. And so, you know, to add to Bob's point, what people often do is create a new God in their own image that will submit to them, right? Um, this has happened particularly in the LGBTQ uh, community under Revoice where God is uh, redefined as one that doesn't condemn same-sex attraction but has actually created it and it's a wonderful gift to those special people that have it. Um, that is not the God of the Bible, but it is a new God that they are worshiping that submits to their will. And so what we have is uh, we, we are starting this chapter on the church and its authority for discipline. And the first point, if you see it there, uh, first article is the Lord... Jesus, as king and head of his church, has therein, in the church, appointed a government. In the hand of the church officers, um, distinct from the civil magistrate. Okay, so this is important. There's a distinction being made um, that the church officers have an authority that is not within the church, that is distinct from the civil magistrate. There's a lot of history um, that I could spend about a couple hours talking about the difference between the magistrate and the church. And back in those times, there was some reliance on the civil magistrate to enact uh, protection over the church. Um, that is not the kind of world we live in now. Um, but even then, with that idea in mind, the, the church officers were absolutely distinct from the civil magistrate. That was an important um, thing to make, or important distinction to make. But I want you to see where it starts, uh, where all this begins. Um, if you look at Colossians chapter 1, um, in the book of Colossians, there is a, uh, a heresy uh, that, is being, um, that is being fought here. Um, the Colossian heresy was, was this, that Jesus wasn't quite um, God. He might have been divine-like, but he wasn't God. And so Paul here is addressing that heresy in trying to demonstrate who Christ was. And speaking of Christ, the, the Son of God, he says, He is the image, this is verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created both in heavens and on earth, both visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, 
the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn among the dead, so that he himself will come to have the first place in everything. So he is the head of the body. This is uh, spoken of in Ephesians as well. You see it throughout the New Testament. He is the head of the body. So this body um, requires governance for this body to remain a body. And so this is, this is to, de- to demonstrate what it is that, that holds the power that, gives, um, that is able to give authority to people. Um, again, the biggest problem that we have when, we, when it comes to church discipline is that discipline is often carried out by humans, humans who are flawed themselves, humans who only by the grace of God are able to, um, to be in Christ anyway, um, and there to carry out discipline. What gives them the right to do this? What the first article is saying is what gives them the right is that Christ himself has put these, uh, these offices into place for people to hold these offices. That makes sense? And so article two then goes on. To these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed. By virtue whereof, they have power respectively to retain and remit sins, to shut that kingdom against the impenitent, uh, impenitent, uh, I think I'm, (laughs) impenitent. Am I, it sounds like I'm saying it wrong. Am I saying it right? It just sounds weird to me. Okay. People that are unrepentant. See, that sounds better to me. Okay. Uh, Both by the word and censures, and to open it unto penitent sinners, people that are repentant, by the ministry of the gospel and by absolution from censures, as occasion shall require. Okay, let's take this piece by piece. Um. To these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed. Okay? That sounds pretty... Well, how do I put it? Does that sound too Catholic to you? Yes. <laughs> I mean, this, and, and these, are, these are articles written in, um, in some ways in rebellion to the Catholic Church. So how is it that... It's saying that the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed to these officers. What are these keys? Okay, let's first say, uh, let's talk about how Catholic, the Catholic Church talked about the keys of the kingdom. Okay, who were the keys given to in, in the Catholic understanding of keys of the kingdom? Who were they given to? Who did Jesus give the keys to? Okay, Peter. The, what they would call the first pope. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so... Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think you're, you're starting to get ahead of me, but that's good. Um, so you're seeing that, and so what, what Nathan is talking about is he's saying there's this idea of authority and accountability that's established even before all this. Um, and that's important, we'll get to that. Um, but when we're talking about the keys of the kingdom, I want you to understand that with, um, through, the, through the Catholic view, um, they see Peter being handed the keys of the kingdom in the sense that he becomes a Christ-like figure on earth to guide the church. Um, and this becomes very centralized on a particular person. And the kind of duties that that person does is not one that merely repeats what is written in God's word, but is able to even expound God's word, beyond God's word. Um, able to make what's called um, proclamations that are uh, ex-cathedra, from the chair. Um, and this becomes uh, something that we as Protestants don't see in scripture. So what do we mean as Protestants, particularly those authors of the Westminster Confession of Faith, what do they mean at the keys of the kingdom? Well, what they don't mean is that these officers hold the power to make proclamations beyond Scripture, um, or even to hold the kind of power that is so centralized as what we would call popish power or popery. Um, but rather, it, ex it explains what these keys of the kingdom, what this means, and it means this. By virtue, so as the value of these kinds, of, the keys to the, to the kingdom, this is what they mean. That they have power, respectively, to retain and remit sins. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means in the church, you're going to have people that are going, that are going to sin. Okay? Um, unfortunately, we haven't found the church where no one sins yet. It's, we've been looking. And uh, so far, we just come up empty. Um, so it turns out we're going to have people in this, in this congregation that are going to sin. So the question is, when someone sins, we have a variety of uh, um, levels of sin, right? You might have a guy that, that fails in his marriage, um, and that's a sin. And, um, but there's different levels of failing, isn't there? Right? There's failure to lead his home, Okay. Do we excommunicate someone because they fail to lead their home? Well, not right away. <laughs> um, but there, you know, there's levels. Well, you know, he doesn't seem to do anything to lead the home. So how can we get behind him and help him, you know, be an active person in his home so that he can lead? What if he starts failing his home where he starts abandoning his wife? What if he has committed himself to pornography to the point where he's just abandoned his wife? He, and, he's, and he's 
not even trying anymore. Well, now what do we do? Do we retain that, that sin or do we expunge him from this place because he's, he's unrepentant, right? These are the kinds of questions. These are the keys that are in the hands of the officers to decide when sin is to be dealt with in-house or sin needs to be expunged from the congregation. Does that make sense? And it is a power that stands under the authority of Christ himself, who is head. So this is not a small thing. Um, we, uh, one of my history uh, professors from Westminster put it this way. The person that has changed the face of, of the American church more than any other person was Henry Ford. Because there was a time where we lived in a community and the church was the church. If you weren't Methodist, you were now because that's the only church in town. Right? Um, if you don't like how the people treat you in that church, well, you got to go back because it's the only church in town. And so you got to make it work. You got to wait till the pastor dies off and you get a new pastor, or you got to do something, right? I mean, it's just, you had to get along. You were forced to get along. You were forced to work through hard things. You were forced to be under maybe even bad management, right? And you had to just keep on going. It would be interesting to see people back then come join us now and say, So why did you leave again? <laughs> Are you kidding me? You know what I had to put up with for 20 years at my church? Anyway, Henry Ford invents a, this machine that can take you to another town quite quickly, right? And so, um, so he changes this, you know, the face of what it's like to even go to a church because what we decide we're going to leave over can become smaller and smaller. And so what, we've, what, has, what has happened where, is that when someone leaves a church or someone is even excommunicated, they go, oh, well, they're just, that's that church. You know those people. It's not real to them. Um, but what should sober us is that these, these actions that a church places uh, or conducts um, come with power. And it's power from the Lord. And I know this sounds very self-serving for an elder to be talking this way. But it's also very humiliating to be talking this way as an elder, knowing that this kind of power is placed in our hands by the Lord himself. And you realize how unworthy you are of it. But it's work that has to be done. Not for the sake of power, but for the sake of the health and obedience of the congregation. Because I'll tell you what, I have, uh, I've been acquainted with what happens when people feel that powerism becomes their life-giving breath. Um, never underestimate what happens 
when um, when men in power feel like their their relevance is disappearing. Um, then power becomes the life and breath that keeps them going because without it, they feel they're not relevant anymore. And and I say this without euphemism, God forbid that the elders at this church ever come to the point where they feel power is the only thing keeping them relevant in this world. In fact, good leadership begins with seeing yourself as being replaceable and seeking out men to replace you. That's where good leadership begins. Um, anyway, I say that to say is if we see the keys of the kingdom having real power to help us in the purity of the church, may it never be used for our own desire and uh, to be relevant. Um, and so this power is designed to shut the kingdom against the unrepentant or the impenitent. Those that refuse, not, just, not to submit to the elders, if I can put it that way, but to submit to God's word. And the elders are placed there to make sure you are submitting to God's word. And if you don't, there's power placed in them to be able to censure you first with the word right because it says both by the word so when you know when andrew is is in that pulpit and he starts saying uncomfortable things to us that we may not uh feel comfortable hearing do you realize that that's a way for him to show grace to us because wouldn't it be better to hear that those hard things from the pulpit and have our hearts submit to those things in the pew instead of in the conference room with the elders where we have to take the next step, right? And the next step is designed for more grace, right? We beg you to submit to God's word. Um and try to spell out plans for you that would help you submit to God's word and to give you a plan that would lead you back to the Lord that an unrepentant heart is going to hate, but a repentant heart would welcome. Um, this, isn't a, this isn't an occult where rules are made up as we go to give more power to the, to the leaders. Because that's what an occult does, right? But rather, these things are ways to make sure that everyone loves God's word and holds to it and submits to what the Holy Spirit is calling us to submit to. And I'll tell you, this is, and this really does come down to things that are, um, that are to protect our families, I mean, when we are dealing with a man who doesn't, who is, um, who is failing in his leadership, this is a grace to the wife and a grace to the children. When we have to deal with someone in, I don't know, 
gossip or something like that. This is a grace to our people to protect each other. Whatever it is we're doing, that we're not, um, we are focusing on those things that Scripture is very clear about. Um, if if you are a member, but you don't, you know, you don't, you're not, you haven't wrapped your head around, or you haven't agreed to pedo uh, pedo um, baptism, um, and you see a baby with water being put on its head, and you're like, I don't get that. That's okay. You're not going to be brought into the elders' office and you know berated for that. We understand there's grace on certain things in Scripture that we're, we can sit in the same pew together and not see the same way. But there's other things that are the non-negotiables that have to be dealt with through discipline if there isn't a penitent heart. Okay. But when someone is repentant, the ministry of the gospel is what we want. It is bringing them back. Um, so that we can take away the censures. If someone is excommunicated in our church, it is not to get rid of them so we never see them again. It is so that the Holy Spirit would work on them so that we could welcome them back. Can you imagine a Sunday where someone who was excommunicated comes back with their family because they have a penitent heart and they desire the gospel? I mean, can you imagine what a glorious day that would be? We would have to have a potluck and, uh, and celebrate. And Ben would have to come up with really cool songs for us to sing. And, uh, and it would be really awesome. I mean, it would just be a celebration because, because a wayward sheep came back. And I'll tell you, if you think of each other as family, you have no idea the glory that comes when someone comes back. To watch someone in your family drift away is one of the most heartbreaking things. Um, and to see them come back has to be one of the most glorious things. Okay. Number three. Church censures are necessary for the reclaiming and gaining of um, the offending brethren, just like I just mentioned. For deterring of others from the like offenses. For purge, uh, purging out uh, of the leaven which might infect the whole lump. For vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel. And for preventing the wrath of God which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof, and to profane by notor uh, notorious and obstinate offenders. And this comes, uh, let me, you know, we kind of talked about um, the point of, of discipline is to bring people back who are being disciplined. But it's also, we do it publicly not because we're trying to humiliate people, but because we want people to see that, the, that our exercising of discipline is real. That it might put some, um, some fear in our hearts of what happens when we walk away from the Lord. 
Um, we have, uh, as a nation, we have submitted to secularism. Does anyone know how, to, how we would uh, define secularism? Secularism is the design of privatizing your belief system to your personal life, but it not invading into the public life of the world. Secularism is where America is. They are happy that you have your religion and it's great and cute, but don't try to put it in our schools, don't try to put it in our politics, don't try to put it in our media. That's where it does not belong, anywhere else. And we say, as, as good Republicans, we say, oh, that's terrible. We want prayer back in the public schools and we want, we want the media to allow you know, us to say things that we want to say, and, and we, want, we want our faith to be public. We say that as good Republicans, but we don't say it as good Christians. Because if we were good Christians, we would not want to privatize our faith, which means it needs to have structure outside of ourselves in something like a church, where the, where the Lord himself has placed human beings over us and we need to submit to them publicly. Where when discipline happens, even in a public manner, it's demonstrating that our faith is not privatized. Our faith is lived out in the body amongst ourselves and there's public things that have to happen when we sin. And we should be afraid of letting our family down, letting our God down and even letting our, le our leaders down. And so I say that because, you know, as I hear certain men champion the Republican idea that we shouldn't privatize our faith, they're the same ones who haven't become members of a church because they do want to privatize their faith. But they love their politics. Okay. So it is to deter uh, the offenses of others, uh, and, um, and it's also for purging out the leaven, which might infect the whole lump. I mean, I'll tell you this. Um, some people blow out long before that, you know, action needs to be taken. And sometimes that's, that's okay, because uh, people... This is something else I've learned lately. When people feel they have a cause that is righteous enough, they feel that there are rules that can also be bent in honor of how amazing their cause is. Um, if people feel that Andrew, you know, they don't like something about Andrew, or they don't like something about the, the way the elders have done something, um, they know that gossip and slander is bad, but that's only bad when you're doing it for yourself. But when you're doing it for God's sake, then gossip and slander is awesome because God, God needs your gossip and slander to help his cause, you see. And so, you know, people really do hold, you know, to this. It's a, it's a, Muslim, it's a Muslim doctrine, you know. Uh, Muslims believe that it's wrong to drink 
uh, alcohol and it's wrong to do certain things on holy days and all that sort of thing, but you're allowed to do, to do those things according to um, their interpretation of the Quran if they're doing it for a cause of Allah. So you will have Muslims, if they're undercover because they're trying to do something terrible to a group of people and they need to be undercover and they need to hide that they're a Muslim, then they'll drink alcohol. Then it's okay. Allah will permit it because it's for a good cause. How many of us, when we have a good cause, start seeing God as a law instead of the God of the Bible? He will permit this. He will permit my my unchristian activity because this is a good cause. We've seen it even happen in our own church where people that thought they had a good cause felt they could also do very unethical things that even unbelievers would flinch at. And so how do we, how do we purge the leaven where people feel, I need to save this church by poisoning it? Um... This is the work of the elders, and it's very unpopular. It's very unpopular because usually people that are, are poisoning the church have infected a lot of different people that may have been pretty neutral on the subject, but now have been given an opinion. And now they're angry. They've been told, you're supposed to be angry right now, and let me give you the reasons why. And now when you try to purge this, you're also dealing with people that have become um, sympathetic to the poison. And this is not even to say that, the, you know, that whatever it is, whatever the cause is, might be something that needs to be talked about. But the way in which uh, politics are fought in the church can be quite sinful. For vindicating the honor of Christ himself. I mean, you know, your pastor worked very hard to fight against the PCA's first acceptance of revoice, then suspicion of revoice, and it took him a few years, but finally they got to the point where they finally said, oh yeah, a pastor can't be same-sex attracted. It only took a few uh, a few years in several study groups or whatever. Um, something that should have been obvious from the start. It took a lot of work to get there. And they still haven't disciplined anybody. They're still pastors of churches that write that God has given them the gift of same-sex attraction. And, they, and it's a wonderful gift because now they can, be, uh, they can have relationships with the same sex of, you know, and that, that we straight people can't have. And so this uh, vindicating the honor of Christ needs to be a part of why we have discipline. And the holy uh, profession of the gospel, if we're going to profess the gospel to others, we got to do it without hypocrisy and preventing the wrath of God. How many times have hard things had had to be addressed in the church by elders or by the pastor in the pulpit to prevent God's wrath to come down upon us? Why, when we have, um, 
When we have communion up here, why does Andrew go over this, this stuff over and over again about, well, you, you need to be, you need to cleanse your heart and make sure that, the, the, that you have gone through and done the work to make sure that the Lord, uh, you have done business with the Lord. Why is he making sure that you have authority in your life, that you're either a member or pursuing membership, or you have people in your life that are making sure you are keeping with God's word? Why is he what we call fencing the table? He's fencing the table because he's trying to keep God's wrath from coming down upon us. Right? God becomes wrathful against those who come to his table unworthily. All right, the last one, number four, for the better attaining of these ends, the officers of the church are to proceed uh, by admonition, suspension from the sacrament of the Lord's table for, the, for a season, and by excommunication from the church. So it's giving you three ways that the officers are to proceed when they, when they see discipline is needed. Admonition, where someone is confronted. They might be confronted from the pulpit. You might be confronted by the, by the elders. And that should be, um, that's one step. Another step is suspending someone from the sacrament of the Lord's table, saying that um, you need a time away from the Lord's table until you have dealt with this impeding sin. And then lastly, um, when all other things have been exhausted, excommunication from the church. And of course, this would be according to the nature of the crime, the merit of the person. In other words, depending on the situation. Okay? Excommunication comes with a lot of work from the elders. Usually very little work from the person that's being excommunicated. Um, so there are, there are meetings, you reach out to the person, uh, you reach out in person, you reach out uh, with email, then you reach out with, with letters, then you have the letters uh, notarized to make sure that they actually got the letter. I mean, you're going through all these things. It takes, takes over a year to really get to the point where you're finally at the, you know, if there's no response or there's no repentance. Um, these are months and months over a year of work to get to the point where excommunication actually happens. Um, and it's agonizing because you feel like you are, um, you are hurting someone that you love. And you do it because you love them. It's the same thing that goes through your mind when you have to spank and uh, spank your children and you have waited sufficient amount of time for the anger to pass by and you're cool again, but now you don't feel like spanking, <laughs> right? And you know you have to do it anyway. And uh, the speech at the beginning is really short because you just want to get it over with. All right, you know you did wrong. Okay, let's get this, all right, turn around. Da, 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 da. All right, and then, and then you turn them back around, then you have the long talk because you, you feel terrible about it, right? But you know it has to be done. Because you love them. And this is what discipline feels like to elders that love their people. 
and to a pastor that loves his people. Um, so anyway, this is censures. Um, this is the, one of the difficult parts of the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is um, necessary but unpleasant, if I can put it that way. But, but it is the way in which the Lord himself said, this is how I want my church to run. I want to put in offices, and I want humans in those offices. And I want them to uh, rule using my power. That all this means something. This doesn't mean that elders rule without any mistakes. Um, at least I hope that's not what it means, because we make mistakes, right? But it's important for us to know that this doesn't mean that there is no power simply because it's humans um, that do the work. All right. Good. Um, we're out of time, but I will pray. <laughs> Isn't that convenient? Uh, but uh, afterwards, you can talk to me if you have any questions. But I think uh, we covered it so sufficiently and so well that I can't imagine one question you might have. So, uh, <laughs> all right. All right, well, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time you've given us. Uh, we thank you um, for the way you take care of your church, even through imperfect people. And Lord, we pray that you would give us grace, uh, give us the grace of your, um, of your power, but also we ask for the grace that we might have for each other, that we might be gracious and leave room for each other, that we might... Um, that we might submit well to each other. Lord, we pray that you would give us help uh, over this next hour as we come before your word. Lord, we ask for your empowerment uh, through Andrew, that his words might be your words, and that our hearts might bow before them, and that great work might be done in our hearts, in this place, for your glory. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen.